2020 marks the 50th birthday of Griffin Theatre Company's home, the Stables Theatre. I'm Angela Caterns. Join us as we celebrate the anniversary in this special series of podcasts where we'll hear about the theatre's history and talk to some of the country's most celebrated artists. In 2010, Griffin Theatre Company presented Angela's Kitchen, starring cabaret performer Paul Capsis. It was an evocative and beautifully staged piece of autobiographical theatre and was the smash hit of that year. Paul Capsis, welcome to the Stables Theatre 50th Anniversary Podcast Series. Hello, Angela, and happy 50th anniversary to the Stables. This was a very personal story, wasn't it? Very personal the most personal work I've ever performed in my entire life, career. Angela's Kitchen. Who was Angela? My darling grandmother, my maternal grandmother, my Maltese grandmother, who raised me in Surrey Hills before Surrey Hills became trendy. <laughs> and so you played multiple characters in, in this piece? Yes, I played my grandmother, my grandfather, my mother, my auntie, my brother, my cousin, myself. <laughs> I think there were a few others. <laughs> There was a scene around a kitchen table, which I improvised when I did the workshop with Julian Merrick, the masterful director. Yes. Well, let's talk about the story of how it came about. Mm. I know at the time you were a singer. What kind kind of a singer were you? Singing what kind of songs? I guess mostly cabaret. I'm sort of, I guess I fit more into the cabaret sphere. I I mean, I have a background in theatre, but I've ended up, as Julian said to me one day, he said, you're a a cabaret star who's really a character actor or something like that. Because I, I, my history with Julian goes back to the 80s when I was an actor mm-hmm. and had given up on the idea of being a singer because I tried for, to be with bands and I was too strange. So I, I just let I gave all that up. Ended up doing a lot of fringe with Julian in the early 80s. So tell us about Julian Merrick. He, he's a, a director and theatre historian, I understand. That's right. Julian Merrick. I uh, met him around 1986. I was doing a, a cabaret show in the city and I met Julian. And after the show, he came up to me and he said, I want to work with you. I think you're a character actor and I would love you to join my company, Kick House. And I was with him and his company for, oh, a number of years. And through him, I met Louise Fox, who was an actor and a performer with, with the company Kick House, with Julian leading and directing. And I also, through Louise, met Barry Kosky. So there's all these interesting connections. And so Julian cast you in your first professional theatre role at the stables. Is that right? That's right. He did. Uh, it was a show called Grace Amongst the Christians by Luke Devonish. And Louise Fox was in that and a number of other wonderful actors. And I played Jonathan Christian and it was a wild piece, an Australian original piece about a Christian family and it was at the stables. And I remember the proximity of the audience to the performers and I was sort of starting out back then. I'd been with Shopfront Theatre in Carlton. I'd been with them for five years and then I'd stepped out of that and into the world of fringe. I guess you call it, they used to call it fringe theatre and that's what Julian's Kick House Theatre was, Julian Merrick's Kick House Theatre. I remember we would get changed because there's so many of us and we had so many weird costumes. We'd get changed in a house at Woomera Avenue 
and walk dressed as these demented Christians to the theatre, to the stables, because the theatre, the dressing room was tiny, and we performed that piece. <laughs> it got a very interesting reaction. And so it was Julian's idea that you develop a stage production about your family and your grandmother, Angela, and your Maltese heritage. Did you think it was a good idea at the time? No, I didn't think it was a good idea. I rejected the idea, actually, the first... I was doing Rocky Horror Show. I was in Melbourne. I'd been with the show for a year and I got this beautiful card delivered to the hotel in Melbourne from Julian Merrick with the idea of doing a play about my grandmother, Angela, who he met and had discussions with. Uh, There was a period when I was in Melbourne doing something, uh, and I can't remember what, but he was staying in my place in Sydney and there was a thing with the key, picking up the key, and it was with my grandmother, Angela. So he'd go and have these, you know, Julian, cup of tea with Angela, talking about the war because his father, Julian Merrick's father, was uh, involved in the war and uh, Malta and he knew all the history. And so there was a lot of discussion with Angela. So when he approached me with this beautiful card to do the play, Angela had only passed, I think it was six months. Oh, she died six she, months she earlier. She died six mm. months earlier. Mm-hmm. She died uh, August 20, 2007 mm-hmm. and I got this card around end of 2008. So it wasn't, for me, it wasn't very long. And the idea, I balked at the idea. I thought, oh, no, I could never stand on a stage and say, talk about my grandmother because that would be too too much for me. Too personal. Too personal and too upsetting, I think. That was my idea. But the thing was, in the card, he talked about her, but he talked a lot about migration and that it was an important story. It was an Australian story. And also he had interest. He'd taken the idea to Nick Marchant, who was the artistic director of the Griffin Theatre at the time, and that Nick was keen to give us a workshop. I called Julian. I said, thank you for your beautiful card, but I don't think I can. And he said, that's okay. He said, "Um, think about it. Take as long as you need. He goes, the offer's there from Nick. And then he talked more about the idea of the play, not just being a personal play, a, a play about migration, an Australian story, my connection with my grandmother. I guess about another seven or six months went by and I called. I thought about it a lot and it's interesting for me, the politics of it was what brought me to the decision to say yes because I thought... You know, it's interesting. There are a lot of Maltese in Australia that have migrated and I don't recall ever hearing their story, Mm, stories. Mm. So that was what drove me primarily to saying yes to the idea. And what was the process then of bringing Angela's Kitchen to the stage? Well, then Nick uh, Marchant made it possible for us to sit in a room for a week and, of course, Julian being the Julian Merrick, the director and collaborator, writer, had the idea of a week workshop with me in the room with my actual artefacts, my grandmother's things that I have and all the photographs, my Malta collection from when I was a child. So there's the other, that's the other part of the play that was what drove Julian for, is to talk about my obsession with the place of my mother's birth mm-hmm. and my grandmother's birth, mm-hmm. which I was an obsessed child of, about Malta. 
I was a strange kid. I didn't really find Australia very interesting. I just had all these stories from other places all the time, Malta stories from my grandparents and my mum and my aunties and uncles. And then there was the Greek stuff from my dad and the Egyptian Greeks and their stories. You know, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time with grandparents. So I was also one of, I was a very interested child. I wanted to know these stories. I wanted to know everything I could hear. I, I wanted detail. I wanted, what was the weather like on the day of the bombing? You know, I mean, it was crazy. Drove my gr- grandmother mad, Angela. And so I think Julian also knew that because I'd known him for such a long time and told him a lot of these stories. Mm-hmm. So I came in with this huge collection of things. What were the things? Some of them. Well, they're original postcards that I collected from 12, around 10 actually. From maybe the nine. age of 10 or 9. Maybe not. Yeah, yeah, 9 or 10. Yeah. I think that's when I became obsessed and I had to have every photo because I'm like that. If, if I'm interested in something, I have to have everything. I can't have just one little thing. I have to have everything you can find on it. Collected from Maltese strangers I'd meet. I'd say, have you got any more calendars or any old postcards? <laughs> And they'd look at me and they go, oh, this child is so strange. He knows more about Malta than I do. Anyway, yes, and I've still got them. I've still got all those things. I brought them in. I brought the photographs. And then Julian had me do a number of exercises, meditations, and constantly recording me with a tape recorder. And he'd say to me, okay, close your eyes. Remember that first trip to Malta in 1986 when you were 22? Just go on a, on a walk because I did a lot of these walks. I walked everywhere. Mm-hmm. I found my grandmother's house first day, walking from St. Julian's through Slima to Gzira, where my grandmother lived, walking, walking, and found the house. And so I described as much as I could remember, and I had a very vivid memory of the place. Because I studied Malta as a kid and throughout, I actually found it really easy to navigate. I mean, it's a small island, but I wasn't very familiar with with uh, structures and streets and, you know. So, you know, during the week of doing that, it was cathartic at the end of that because by then I I was still grieving and missing my grandmother mm-hmm. greatly, but we were in a bit of a turmoil with the family, unfortunately. So the family, we went through a bit of a difficult period and it healed and helped Mm-hmm. To the end of the week. And Julian always put the proviso that if I wasn't comfortable or if it got too much or it was too overwhelming and I couldn't do it or that it was okay that we did the workshop, that was important. And, you know, if it goes further. But I'd always, I always had to keep Julian, I guess, I always had to inform him about where I was, what I was feeling about mm-hmm. this process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it had to do with my history with Julian, my trust of Julian, and the fact that my Julian had a connection with my grandmother, Angela. Yes. For me to go into that personal part of my life, you know, that I had to have that trust. And because I'd never really done that in my work. In fact, it it was the furthest thing from me, me as a performer I always wanted to bury myself into other worlds and other characters, mm-hmm. but not my own. So in a way I say to people, I came out as a wog <laughs> to the world, to, as a Maltese Because <laughs> I think I was a mystery, I don't know, I kind of think I was a bit of a mysterious cabaret performer thing, you know, did channeling of Janis Joplin and 
Judy Garland and all the dead ladies, mm. Billie Holiday. And so a script evolved from that process? So Julian went away after the week, after with all recording all the, and transcribed every single thing that I said. Can you imagine Mm-mm. the torture? It was this huge pile. It was like this big. Huge pile of papers. H- huge pile of papers. So then he looked at all that and then through a long period took chunks of the dialogue and formulated a play. Mm-hmm. And also Hilary Bell was involved. She worked on the script. She worked on the script. Mm-hmm. And Julian wanted the shape of the piece to evolve but not to lose my voice. And that was the thing. He said, we have to have you as you speak, not in theatrical, not in a theatre way, but in a more kind of how I would speak and telling those stories as I did on the tape. There was an improvisation I did that Julian got me to do around the table. And he'd said to me, he said to me, you know, so remember when you were maybe 10 or so and around the kitchen, where was your grandfather? Where was your grandmother? Because people tended to always sit in the same. And that was mm-hmm. exactly what happened with our family. Yes. Mum there, grand, my uh, grandfather there, my brother opposite me, me here. Grandma never sat down, always hovering. <laughs> or in the kitchen. Hovering around the kitchen table. And I improvised something and I went into these characters, which I had in other shows I, d- I did this kind of style of two characters talking to them, so each other, like mm-hmm. Judy Garland talking to Liza. Judy, Liza, Mama, you know, doing this kind of weird. And um, I did this with my family around the table. And I went into this, I don't know, like a, not a meditation, but I just got lost in the improvisation and Julian recorded it. And that improvisation remained in the piece mm-hmm. from its inception to the last performance. Mm-hmm. It didn't change. And so how long did it take until you reached the stage of rehearsals for the production? I think it was about a year and a half. There were a lot of meetings. When I was in Melbourne or doing something, if I happened to be doing something, I'd go to Julian's. There was one time we had sat down with Hillary, but mostly it was me sitting in Julian's kitchen in Melbourne Mm -hmm. and reading and it was interesting. There were things I read that I said that I said, I cannot say that. There were just certain things that were too much, mm-hmm. too personal, too much. But a lot of it, there were some things I balked at and Julian encouraged me to keep going with it because he wanted there to have to show this, this conflict, I guess, or the darker side of things mm-hmm. in, in this story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, then we rehearsed. And there were a lot of props and a lot of technical features. What were they? So Julian's partner, Louise McCarty, is a great theatre designer, film television designer. And when, because I brought all the original things in, the original crocheted uh, blanket my grandmother used to sit on her, put on her legs or lean on at the table. And she said, oh, we can't have any of those original things. Everything will have to be replicated. Mm Mm-hmm including books and things that I used. But all of the um, cutlery and all the things were from thrift shops. And also she did this clever thing where she created a skyline of Malta using kitchenware, which I used in the play to describe the bombings and, you know, and so, and she made this cupboard. 
She designed this cupboard, and, and I think she made it as well, and a bag, well, a kitchen table that was the bag at the end of the piece when my grandmother's on the boat going mm-hmm. to, from Malta, mm-hmm. which I fold up. It was incredible. Yes. And so yeah. uh, and so I understand Sam Strong, who came on as the artistic director at Griffin at that stage. That's right. Nick had left and then Nick, uh, Sam Strong came on mm-hmm. as the artistic director through the whole, the, the two seasons. Mm-hmm. The first season, 2010. The 2010 season was rehearsed in an office building in the city, in George Street. It was like an old bank. Mm. I remember we had the entire floor. And then, of course, I was confronted with the learning of this massive dialogue, yes. monologue piece, yes. Yes. no singing, and talking, recalling those stories and those walks and then the family stories was technically difficult mm. and, um, you know, a little bit painful to, to learn it. And then once I learnt it, I think it was like a week before maybe the the actual first performance at the Staples and the Griffin, then the emotional hit once I learnt it. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't been affected by it until... I mean, I was when I read it, it around the kitchen table with Julian and Louise McCarty. Um, the performing of it then was the tricky part. Were you worried that no one much would be interested in your story? Well, I was. I was the person saying, oh, this is silly. What are we doing? This is nuts. <laughs> when they, I think it was six weeks, the first season, I said, you can't, you've got to be joking. Who is coming? Was it a month? I, I, I thought it was crazy. I said, no one's going to come. It's, uh, you know, yeah, I was really, um, I didn't believe it. And then the opposite happened. So, the, t- so tell me, do you remember the opening night? I do. My mother was there. I was very nervous mm-hmm. because for my mother to hear those stories, you know. Um, what was her response? She didn't have much of a response. Oh. She wasn't moved or She didn't say much. Entertained. She just said, yes, that's what happened. I think that's what she said. <laughs> Not much. But my mother doesn't say much about my performances. She doesn't. You know, because the Maltese, some Maltese are very superstitious and my mother's very, you know, she doesn't like to say positive things in case the opposite happens. It's a, it's an old mm-hmm. Maltese mm-hmm. thing that my grandmother had as well. Angela had that. Mm-hmm. But not to that extent. But she, yeah, you know, this, this thing about drawing the evil eye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, but so tell me more about the opening night. So your mum was there. It was a full house. Yes, it was a full house. Uh, we did the previews. I was very nervous. I was, I'm was. i always nervous. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm, I'm very nervous. I also felt exposed because I didn't have anything to hide behind. Also, I didn't wear makeup. I wore very, very simple streetwear, really. I mean, Louise McCarty had me in a very, 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 very simple, easy to walk around on the stage and nothing restricting, but very me as well. Mm-hmm. And at the end, I wore a dress, which was to represent my grandmother. At the end, where I wore gold, simple earrings and just a little bit of lipstick. My grandmother never wore, I don't ever remember her wearing lipstick. 
So it was very, very simple in terms of how I looked. So I felt, as I was telling this, because it was such a personal story, there was a part of me that thought, why on earth would anyone be interested? Why is my story? So I always had to remind myself of Julian's premise for doing it, which was it's about this uh, Australian story about migration and the story of Malta and your connection to it and your grandmother. I'd have to remind myself of that when I get that feeling of, oh, why am I doing this? This is nuts. <laughs> and so, Paul, can you can you remember any of the of the lines? Would you be able to just share with us a tiny little oh um, bit, bit of dialogue from that play? I should remember the opening because I did the last time I did it was twenty seventeen in Malta. Oh, really? Yeah, we did a season in Malta. We finally got to Malta. After many attempts and near misses, we got there in the end. And what was that like? Extraordinary. Very emotional. Mm. Every show I was, I broke down. Because to me, that was beyond imagination. Mm. For me to tell my grandmother's story in her country. Because she never, she always had that strong connection to Malta. She never lost it, even though she never went back. She left in 1948 but never went back. She was terrified. What an extraordinary turn your career has taken. Indeed. Oh, I, I, it was beyond. Uh, it just. It was just mm. incredibly emotional. I mean, as I say, I broke down every show. I could, just, the, just the thought of my grandmother knowing, or, you know, if she was alive, mm. it, for her that would be so incredible. But although I don't think... Knowing her as well as I do, she wouldn't have... I don't think she would have liked her story being told because she was very modest and mm-hmm. very private. Mm-hmm. That was another thing. That was a part of my concern with my mother too because I'm telling these stories, you know, about mm-hmm. my family. Mm-hmm. And um, they weren't keen on that kind of telling people, you, you know, your own family, that's fine, but not outsiders. Mm-hmm. So that was very... Difficult, and I had interesting reactions from other Maltese. That because I did that, they were a little bit hostile or a little bit um, shocked. Uh, There was a lot, you know, a lot of shame being projected Mm. because you know. I mean, I remember one woman coming up to me in the first season. I had so many interesting conversations with people at the Griffin that first season. Members of the audience. Members of the audience. Mm -hmm. In the foyer after. Mm. And so you said you remembered one woman coming up to you. One woman coming up to me and she said, how could you show your grandmother sweeping the floor, cleaning? And I I just, at one at a moment I was dumbstruck and shocked, but then I also got it. I also understood where she, she, where, what she, was, where she was coming from with it. Mm-hmm. But I also had pride of my grandmother and that she was a hard-working, courageous woman, you know. Mm. And so for me it was that, oh, I don't agree, you know. But it was interesting how people projected, audience members projected their their stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, incredible emotion. There was a lot of very emo- emotional people in the audience. There was people sobbing and a lot of laughter, a lot of identification, Mm. And truckloads of people, busloads of Maltese coming to the theatre. That was extraordinary. 
<laughs> How fantastic. So you're, I guess you're used to being on stage alone as a musical performer. Mm. Was it, um, you know, like that, presenting a dramatic play by yourself, solo? Well, it's interesting, Angela, because I never felt alone in that show. It's weird because I had my grandmother's voice. When I was playing her, I could hear her. Mm-hmm. And that for me was a great comfort, but also painful. So I didn't feel alone. I mean, I, I guess every night I'd think, oh boy, I've got this massive journey to go through tonight. I've got to go to all these places. There are a lot of places in the piece. Some really dark ones, really funny ones, you know, uh, very emotional. And I had some nights in the first season and the second particularly Malta, when I broke down and it got harder for me, not easier. So 2012, when we revised the show, it got harder because I missed my grandmother more and I still do mm. more than I did before. I mean, I think that's the thing about grief. And one night in, at the Griffin, there was a couple, elderly couple who knew my grandmother. That was the first season, 2010, and that was one of the most difficult shows that I ever did because they sat in the front row, husband and wife, and my grandmother knew them well. Even talking about it now, I'm getting, you know, because they just sat there beaming at me, you know. A lot of people, Maltese Australians, my generation, were particularly affected by it because they also spent lots of time with their grandparents, their grandmothers mostly. I remember one night one woman sobbing so much that she couldn't leave the theatre after. She was still there. And then because I took so long to get out of my dressing room, they said there's a woman, she's sitting at the back and she's beside herself. She's Maltese and I said, you must bring her in. I have to talk to her. And she was very emotional and she said, I had the same connection with my grandmother and she passed not long ago. There was the night where the woman in the front row... 15 minutes into the show, doubled over with her head in her lap, sobbing. (laughs) And the thing about it was I looked at her and she looked like my cousin, Margie. She resembled her so much. Mm. And I thought, oh, she's definitely Maltese. She might even be related. She's very affected by the play. And she stayed like that for the rest of the show. And I was a little obsessed with her. There were nights when there were people I just was drawn because of the space, that incredible magical space, the Griffin, of how you can hear them breathe. You know when the audiences were with you and when when they're nights and where they weren't or they were hysterical or they were emotional. You Very difficult to escape it and also difficult to not be affected. I was very affected by these things, you know, and... um, They affected my performance. And then I remember coming, rushing out into the foyer to look for this woman. I wanted to find out what was going on with her. Mm. And her husband was, the man sitting next to her, her husband was there. And I said, where is that woman? And he said, oh, she's just gone to the bathroom. She was so affected by your play. I said, I know. I said, she's Maltese. And he went, oh, no, she's Brazilian. Oh. (laughs) He said it was her mother's story. Oh, is that right? I went, same, everything the same. So, so that was an interesting thing. Yes. And so do you think 
performing in that theatre, the stables, mm. intensified the whole experience for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was intense. When I had a sprinkling of Maltese, it always, it always made a huge difference mm-hmm. to the performances mm-hmm. because there was a lot of Maltese spoken in the show, in the piece, and so the reaction and identification, and not just Maltese, Greeks, Irish, Irish people really related to the show, the Catholic, the big families, the shouting, I don't know, something to do with that. Oh, I remember one night a woman... Maltese woman coming up to me, she went, oh, all that shouting and yelling. That's why my father migrated from Malta to England and took us to boarding schools. Oh, he's hated all of that stuff about the Maltese. (laughs) And the second season, I think it was, they they did a performance for homeless people. That was a wild, unhinged show because people... People were talking really loudly, and one woman, what's this shit? And got up, walked out. Oh, I don't want to hear this shit crap. Walked out, stomped out, people talking. I'll never forget that night. And I I got angry because it's like, this isn't my personal story. How dare you? Because to me, it was like, you're doing that to my grandmother, Mm. not to me, you're doing it to my family. You know, so. And so do you like that place though? Do you do you have a fondness for that place for the for that theater? I do. Uh, it, it will forever be the most special place to me because there were a lot of shows and a lot of incredible things happened there. You know, I have such vivid memories of the opening night with um William Young came backstage and Hillary was there and Julie and so for me that's history as well because I have a strong connection with Hillary going way back before I even met Julian and so it was like my family because I feel like Julian and Hillary Hillary Bell and Julian Merrick are my family you know my theatre family which is more of a family to me in 2019 than whatever I had I mean for me when my grandmother passed Angela it was the end of uh, my family it was the end of that you know, my mother, obviously, I still have, and my brother. And the other thing that was interesting, I cho- because it was focused on my Maltese grandmother, the Greek side wasn't really represented, you know. So it was interesting. My dad came. That was a difficult show because clearly for my father to sit there, seeing me talk about my Maltese side and really barely mention the Greeks, you know, that says a lot. Mm. And he didn't have a lot to say about it except to say, I didn't know you could speak Maltese. <laughs> you know, it's an interesting question about aloneness because there are plays that I've done and things I've performed when I have felt incredibly alone. In the days when I used to do shows with backing tapes or when I was doing Barry Kosky's show in Vienna, I had a band. There were a number of things I performed, Little Bird in Adelaide, where I have band but I'm... You go to the theatre, the band are tuning up, but you're in the dressing room. You're getting, you're go- going into that zone, and for me, the zone usually en- encompasses makeup, and preparation, meditation, prayer, and going into the zone. It's a very important thing for me. So for me, a dressing room is very sacred. I, I don't like people going into the dressing room before or after a show. It's, I have a really funny a thing about it. I just don't like it. A lot of performers want people in the dressing room to talk and to mingle. Cheer them up. 
But I don't want people there. I don't want anyone there. Mm. Only people who are involved in the piece, Mm -hmm. the director, writers, stage manager, lighting. But I don't want it other than them. I don't want anyone there. And I also created a shrine in the Griffin, I remember, in that gorgeous tiny dressing room. Pictures of my grandmother and my family and Malta. I still have them all in a box from the dressing room. And my scripts, which are totally worn and shredding. They're all they're all there in the, in every dressing room I performed, but particularly that theatre and particularly the Griffin because of the way I felt the audience. You know, you you just can't escape that 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 intense feeling of 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 an audience. I mean, we one of my other favourite places w- was to perform in the second season when we toured it was the Parramatta Theatre because a lot of Maltese went. And they were wild. They were talking and to me mm-hmm. and to each other mm-hmm. and singing. And, uh, you know, that, that was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And one night in Canberra at the Street Theatre, a Maltese woman in Maltese told me to stop. She said, stop now. That's enough. <laughs> I ran out looking for her as she left. I was so, in, in, you know, I, I actually stopped for a moment in the show. Because I thought I imagined she said that. But she glared at me. So, you know, a lot of interesting experiences with the play. But the reaction in Malta was very similar to the Griffin because the theatre in Malta, the St James Cavalier, was very tiny and they were also around me. So very similar. Mm -hmm. But it was a square, though. But the Maltese, Malta, they were all talking and hilarious. Fantastic. Paul, thank you so much. It's been a delight to speak to you. Thank you, Angela. Thanks for listening to Griffin's special podcast series where we're celebrating 50 years of the stables. For more anniversary activities, head to Griffin's website, griffintheatre.com.au. 